0: Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Natasha Mascarinas, and joining me this week is Danny Crichton. How are you, Danny?
1: I'm doing all right. Uh, Natasha, how are you?
0: It feels good. I mean, I miss Alex, but it feels good to just have the tri-state area here so we can just rep hard together.
1: One of us lives in civilization and the other lives in New Jersey. So it's uh, always a good uh, conversation. We got rid of the Connecticut, uh, I'm sorry, Rhode Island, one of those small states north of New York that doesn't, sorry, I, I, uh, you know, the Providence uh, startup scene. We, I'll, I'll write a story about your scene at some point here to make up for it.
0: It's where they drink bean juice. That's all I know. About I, I,
1: I still can't believe I didn't know what bean juice was. We're we're going to talk about liquid death the... at some point during this. So talking <laughs> about bean juice, uh, I think we're going to have a nice uh, symmetry in this episode. Well, there is so much to talk about this week. We've got two controversies in the Valley. We, we normally don't cover these on equity, but we're going to talk about Clubhouse and, and Coinbase and, and hopefully drive that conversation in, in a productive way. And then we have a new YC style accelerator for fund managers a 25-year Horizon Venture Fund, and a bunch of funding rounds, some legitimate, some totally crazy. Uh, We'll get to all that going on forward, but let's start with Clubhouse. Uh, Natasha, you were actually in the Clubhouse, on the Clubhouse, at the Clubhouse. I don't actually know what preposition we use with this app, uh, but uh, give us a little bit more about what happened.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't see any other journalists in the Clubhouse. I'll say in but I tuned in for maybe like 10 to 15 minutes. It was late East Coast time, which is kind of the biggest reason why I don't use Clubhouse more than maybe I want to. The There was a conversation about anti-blackness and anti-Semitism. And the part where I tuned in was, I think a really key part of the conversation we should have now is like, I, d- I actually did miss the, the negative things and hatred and misinformation that was spewed. But I did catch someone saying something along the lines of, like the reason we have these conversations is so we can hear the other side and empathize with the other side and get on the same page. And then the next person basically shut that down by saying, "There's this line you have to draw between getting on the same page with someone who's open to it or turning down something that's misinformation and inaccurate." And that's kind of like the conversation of twenty twenty right
1: I think one of the the challenges you're getting at is is this question of moderation, right? We're seeing you know, across social networks, uh, Clubhouse is just, you know, part and parcel with everything we're seeing on Twitter, on Facebook, and even in our own workplaces. And we're going to get to that in a second here. But there's a huge question of like, what's appropriate to say when, where, and with who. And, you know, there's just no consensus. You know, in some cases, it's political. And in many cases, it's not. And I, I think, you know, we, we, we've struggled to build products that handle moderation well. You know, Facebook and Twitter obviously uh, struggle at their scale, but even Clubhouse, which you know, to my understanding only has a couple thousand users—I could be wrong—already we're seeing toxicity come into these communities right when they get started.
0: And the the weird part about Clubhouse is, you know, I've been on the platform for maybe a month now. I see the rooms kind of trend once in a while, and that's like probably when one hundred or two hundred people are in there, and it's when there's this famous person. You can tell that the co-founders have gotten famous influencers to go on the platform, hold dinner conversations, Saturday night hangouts about crazy stuff like TikTok and not so crazy stuff like our political temper right now. And I think like there has been some frustration around that focus on getting blockbuster names instead of like addressing really core issues within Clubhouse. And even the people who love it, who invited me to it and made it a happy place are like, this is no longer living a good taste in my mouth because the priorities have been on growth. It's just the same story. You hear over and over again. The priorities are on growth, and things are breaking. So early. Yeah, I think
1: on. one of the lessons you, you learn from social networks, this is actually from one of my uh, our editor-in-chief, Matthew Panzerino, is that you know, if you don't get the kernel of a community right, if you don't get the culture set up perfectly, no social network gets better with scale. I can't think of a single exception to this rule that like any product that is built around social features, has less problems as it gets bigger rather than more. And so to see that with just a couple of thousand users, you're already having huge challenges. It, you know, what, what's going to happen when Clubhouse scales, presumably to hundreds of thousands of people, to millions of people? Right. Um, how do you even begin to moderate live real-time audio? You know, a platform yeah. that's built around broadcast. I mean, there's no, you know, in the, in the NBC, ABC, CBS world, like the standards uh, department that's going to have all these rules that follow FCC guidelines, like it's a free-for-all. And I don't even think we have real-time moderation like platforms available. I mean, I, I'm not familiar with any APIs that can handle this sort of challenge, are you?
0: No, I'm not. I wrote about another company that maybe is what clubhouse could have been or could have been a clubhouse called Upstream in the beginning of the pandemic, and it was basically bringing together professional communities to talk to each other. And I asked the co-founder. I was like, you, have to, you like we're in this this world and this country, and so like we have to think about moderation from day one. How are you doing that? And he was like, I'm doing it myself. And it's kind of like you're betting on it not blowing up so you can do it yourself. And the the other thing that I'm I have to note is like I feel like it hit different, especially given the debate this week. Just seeing how moderation <laughs> can really I you don't I mean, I want to make a joke about it, but I I was going in being like, I'm gonna play drinking games, I'm gonna follow live live tweet Twitter, didn't laugh, was on the brink of tears the entire time, and I mean, yeah, I, it was it was really scary. And it was like, if we can't do this offline in a presidential setting, I don't know when we're ever going to be able to do this. Yeah, we really
1: need a, a Chris Walls to re- be replaced by, by a machine learning algorithm. Um,
0: you know, and I, I think but again,
1: <laughs> I, I think, you know, moderation and we'll move on to another topic. But I I think, you know, TikTok has obviously been in the news for a long time. You know, TikTok in some ways figured out some level of moderation It tried to create a platform that was more positive. Um, that had more uplifting uh, joy, you know, um, people dancing and and sort of funny videos. But then the downside to that kind of stronger uh, touch on moderation was that a lot of people were excluded. Um, Specific types of people, LGBT, uh, differently abled folks uh, were excluded from the platform. And then whole topics were not capable of being discussed, whether they were China related, which is obviously what drove a lot of the conversation in Washington, D.C., but also more broadly, just anything that was partisan was sort of prevented from being accessed on the platform. And so I think, you know, we don't obviously we're not going to go to solve it on on equity in in about five minutes. But I do think that figuring out moderation going forward is going to be one of the toughest challenges for every tech company going forward.
0: Yeah, it's never not a focus. Megan Rose one of our reporters wrote about Twitter and Zoom's algorithmic bias issues, a little bit of a different conversation, but it just shows like when the tech is there, when you are at that stage where you can de- dedicate resources and teams to making sure you're being inclusive, these things still happen and break. And I think it's just representative. We need a more diverse workforce who can think about it. We need a lot of things to change.
1: Um, but I want to move on to another inclusion and and moderation question, because the other big controversy this week was Coinbase. Uh, Coinbase CEO uh, Brian Armstrong published... I guess I, I I would call it a little bit more of a manifesto, but a mission statement for the company saying that uh, essentially we're not going to bring politics to work. We're going to be, a, a, I guess, a work-focused workplace. It's focused on Coinbase's kind of narrow mission. And he had followed it up, I, I believe, yesterday with basically an email to staff saying that if you don't commit to this new mission statement, here's the door. The door also has a lot of money attached. So that, that's an important com- component. Uh, I think it was four months of severance for folks below three years, six months of severance for folks above three years, and then Cobra coverage, uh, health insurance. Uh, But like, I've never seen a company kind of take this sort of like, you're with us or against us approach, particularly a company as large as Coinbase. And I, I think it gets directly to this moderation question. We also saw this with Facebook moderating employee discussions on its own internal chats of like, what should you say at work? You know, how should companies moderate? What do you think about that?
0: I think some people are looking at this as it's wishful thinking for the CEO to think that tech is not a political thing. I think some people are saying like, well, if you only if you take emotion out of the equation, then you're going to be a successful company. I think that's something I'm not going to quote um, Paul Graham, but he you he was in did. support of the blog post. <laughs> I know. I take back the quote. We're not going to talk quote. about Paul
1: Graham, uh, but Paul Graham said. Um,
0: <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I think I guess my big read on the situation is like journalism, the role of being a journalist has changed. The role of being a tech worker has changed. Before, when I was in journalism school, it was like, if you go to a march and you want to participate, you probably shouldn't be a journalist because you should not be a political person. I think we're past that. And I think every, all our jobs are becoming political because we are so much deeper in the DNA. It's, I think it's wishful to think otherwise.
1: I I think the, the challenges are, um, you know, there's a question of what is political, you know, sure. the, the start for the Coinbase debate, uh, according to a tweet uh, thread by by Erica Joy was, you know, Brian Armstrong was not willing to sort of say Black Lives Matter, um, I guess, publicly inside the company, and then publicly outside the company. And, and the, 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 that's a huge question, right? Is like, should that even be political? Right? I mean, in some ways, it's like, yeah, uh, we don't want to talk about politics at work. But like, how can you say, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter is not political, right? Black, lives do matter. You know, violence against Black people is right. important. Um, you know, maybe it's not the right place within Coinbase, uh, so to speak. But, uh, you know, fundamentally, if you're not willing to commit to your own employee base, people who actually work for you and say, your your lives should be safe, and they should be healthy, and they should uh, be rich and rewarding. How do you work at a place like that? I, that that was the kind of the, the challenge that I was having. And so, I mean, similar to, I think, Clubhouse, you know, once the culture has gotten to this point, um, both from the leadership and from, from the employee base. I mean, again, you have a, the exact same sort of moderation issue that you have with the social networks. Once you're at this sort of bad you know, nadir of a culture, what do you do next? I mean, there's no way to kind of fix this. It's not going to get easier as Coinbase expands to more and more people and I presume it expands. Now it's now become known as the kind of place that's going to have this sort of culture some folks have actually said that might benefit the recruiting. I think in the long term, it will not because you're now going to get a much more homogenous workforce who doesn't actually understand the politics. And and fundamentally, crypto is a political product. I mean, it's it's actually arguably one of the most political products being produced by right. Silicon Valley today.
0: I think the biggest disservice a CEO can do to a company is to take Black Lives Matter as a political phrase and use that as a crutch, as an excuse to not say it. When George Floyd was murdered, I talked to a bunch of VCs about their statements. And I said, like, why did you not use that phrase, Black Lives Matter? And off the record, a ton of them said that we can't use it because, you know, part of Trump's people invests in a part of our fund. And we cannot use that wording because it will screw us over with our LPs. And to me, that kind of underlined how. You know, startups have become have been inherently political. VC has been inherently political. I think,
1: you know, and the last piece here and then we'll move on is, is you know, ultimately it's a question of values. And I, I think, you know, uh, Brian was trying to express values. Of course, it's very late to express values. I, I think values are ones that are internalized from the beginning of an organization or internalized in a product, whether it's a social network and a price software or whatnot. It's really, really hard to imprint values, you know, years after everyone has sort of gone their own direction. And, you know, I I think one of the challenges for the Valley is we're not used to expressing sort of fundamental truths. These questions are not political. If you already know kind of where you stand, you know, if you have those fundamental values, it makes a lot of these decisions so much easier. You don't even have to think.
0: Right. It's black and white. It it
1: just becomes second nature. So let's let's put a pin on that.
0: So because we're kind of done talking about where the current companies are at and want to talk about more exciting opportunities for the next generation of founders. I wrote a story this week for TechCrunch about Operator, which is basically a program that's going to help people who want to be become their own venture capital firms one day start.
1: So first of all, Operator is O-P-E-R eight, the number eight, and then R. So one of the worst it's not even it's not even like deleting letters and replacing the letters with a number. <laughs> it's a little bit complicated. Right. right. I, I think they're actually solving something that's really um challenging for a lot of new VC managers. VC, the actual investing side of VC is not that complicated, right? I mean, you get the term sheet right. There are certain terms that matter. Over time, you get more experience. You you know, you start to uh, appreciate certain uh, terms more over the course of your career than others. I, I think one of the things, though, that we don't hear a lot about is like the actual mechanics of building a fund and building a firm are really complicated. There are huge legal questions: how you structure the management company, how you structure each fund whether you structure it in the United States or the British Virgin Islands, like how do you even fly to the British Virgin Islands? Should you fly? Uh, do you go to the Isle of Man? Like where which tax haven is the right one to go to? These are just Danny questions. Which one questions. is the Man and Oriental the best? <laughs> and I, I think what what operators trying to fill the gap on is to say, hey, you know, you have to figure out HR, you got to figure out finance, you got to figure out, you know, how you do capital calls, you know, how do you set up the wiring infrastructure for this? How do you hire the right kind of partners who are going to fill in the different roles that you need, whether that's marketing, PR finance, operations, HR, legal, you know, what kind of firms did you work with, you know, all these different services that VCs need ultimately are provided by other service providers, lawyers, accountants, tax uh, prep, uh, preparers. And so, you know, to me, operators are actually filling a, a critical gap for a lot of folks who, you know, are going to go beyond rolling funds, which are sort of default. And, you know, angelus does most of the work. If you want to institutionalize and build your own uh, vehicle, you know, you got to start with the actual Lego building blocks.
0: Right. And I think like often the conversation gets lost in the noisiness of here's how to invest. You can learn that from Substack, as you said, Danny, it's like very easy to learn that. And I think it's smart that operators basing a ton of its content on how to secure and work with LPs and know what kind of LPs are right for you. Maybe it's not rocket science, but I know for a fact that LPs have not gotten as unbundled as maybe the forward facing VC, what it means to be a VC has. And then a core part of their program is actually they have 50 LPs that are going to be like working with the funds coming out. The first cohort, which grad- which started in, I believe, June, their first cohort included people who left their rolling funds, spun out of VC firms and wanted to start their own or it kind of outgrew their angel investing needs and have bigger ambitions. And so I think the reason Angel Fund was so successful is like people don't want to think about these nuts and bolts. But, you know, at a certain point, paying angelists, I'm sure, is not super fun. And people want to do their own thing. I also
1: think, you know, similar to the way that startup, you know, building a startup became democratized, we're we're finally seeing the institutions being built to democratize VC. You know, it is an old boys network, literally and, and figuratively, and mostly because, you know, all of the knowledge it takes to build a fund is held in people's heads. You know, there are folks who have done it before. And if you have one of those as a mentor, they can solve a lot of problems for you. You know, how do you set up all these different structures? Well, they've done it before and they, they have experience, they have the networks, they know who to have you talk to. But if you're someone new, someone who's not part of the old boys network, or, you know, a totally different demographic, you're coming from somewhere else, you don't have access to that sort of tacit knowledge. And so I think, you know, groups like operator, obviously angel this with the new rolling funds, you know, they're really democratizing access to to the knowledge it takes to actually build these vehicles and create them as as durable funds for the long term.
0: Yeah, I'm curious, like, do you feel like LPs, from your understanding, LPs are at all reacting to the introduction of new investment vehicles, are they flocking to rolling funds? Are they interested in, you know, the emerging class of fund managers? Or do you feel like the appetite is more so reserved still for the the old boy network?
1: I think it is changing. I mean, rolling funds are very new. So the LP world works at a speed that is not uh, Silicon Valley speed, let's just say that. Uh, I, I would <laughs> bet that the average LP has never heard of a rolling fund. But you know, I was talking to a couple of VCs earlier this week. The discussion was basically like, look, you know, at the end of the day, rolling funds, you know, are sort of the the lean VC fund approach, right? They're they're super easy to get started. You get some friends together, you have some capital to invest, you go. It's still a immense amount of work to institutionalize. You have to have a thesis, you have to fit into the buckets for different LPs. So some LPs want early stage enterprise, some want growth, you know, North America, maybe East Coast. You know, you have to fit exactly their sort of portfolio strategies, and you have to get a lot of the legal work out of the way. I mean, if you want to take money from, say, certain pension funds, they have public disclosure obligations, you have to file, you know, monthly, quarterly or annual reports on time. And if you don't, it's criminal, <laughs> right? People could potentially go to jail, it's actually very serious. So you know, when you, you institutionalize, I think there's a huge leap still from the rolling fund to that next step. And that's where I think uh, groups like Operator are, are going to go in. But I want to continue, because I think, you know, when we're talking about new VC innovations, Here's something that I've never seen before. Silver Lake this week announced a new, I guess they they called it a strategy, but it's essentially a fund backed by Mubadala, which is the Abu Dhabi uh, sovereign wealth fund that will actually have a 25-year investment horizon. So in in traditional VC, it's generally 10 years. And there are specific funds like the Engine, which is out of MIT up in Boston, run by Katie Ray and Reed uh, Sturtevant, which have a 12 or I think maybe a 14-year horizon. We've never seen a a 25-year horizon fund. And the goal here is to be able to double down on tech companies basically over the next couple of decades.
0: Do you think it's in response to companies staying private longer than before? Or I guess 25 years, yeah, it's the first time I've heard something like that. Well,
1: it's definitely, you know, companies are staying private. And and then I, I think even you know, there's this view that a lot of the value, you know, the growth value of a company is held on the private market. So if you, you know, buy a company publicly, you've already kind of lost the moment. But I think, you know, if you've seen Zoom, if you saw Shopify the last couple of years, even Tesla, which you could have publicly bought, you know, the last decade, you actually had amazing growth opportunities. I mean, some of these stocks are up, you know, multiples, dozens uh, of X over the last couple of years. And so what are the answers I've been told is, is like, you actually need to invest and hold really long term. And if you're at the scale where you're a Silver Lake, which has, you know, billions and billions under management is actually raising an $18 billion fund ongoing, it has 18 billion already fundraising, it's continuing as of August uh, of this year, you know, the ability to actually hold on and say, look, you know, we think there's another 5x coming in the next decade. No, that's not necessarily a VC investment. It's publicly traded, but we want to keep going. You know, we, we still have an opportunity to make a lot of money here. Why would we just give that up? Uh, and give it to someone else.
0: The other dynamic that I think is interesting with the Silver Lake news is that Mubadala is a longtime partner for SoftBank. And this deal with Silver Lake is kind of like getting in bed with the enemy, I'm assuming. <laughs> and and so it's definitely a signal, maybe, w- I don't know if they stopped working with SoftBank precisely, but um, it's interesting to kind of see that interest flock elsewhere as SoftBank gets a little bit quieter. But SoftBank's success has been really successful with holding really large stakes in public companies. And and so I think that they're not onto something new, but it, it would be cool to see Silver like kind of recreate what SoftBank has been doing. Well, and
1: to be clear, I mean, this isn't just SoftBank, right? A lot of top Silicon Valley funds. Um, I believe Sequoia has one of these. I believe uh, GC has one of these. Some others have uh, funds like this. Um, they have these like longevity or endurance funds where, you know, they are, you know, in many cases have stakes. You know, Sequoia owns uh, Stripe, for instance. Stripe is a you know, a very old company, it's actually hitting probably the 10 year mark for the fund that, you know, Sequoia has it in, you know, how do you stay with the company, it's got a huge amount of headroom. And I think a lot of top funds, I I think there's at least five or six of these out there these days, now actually do have vehicles that allow them to hold either in perpetuity or for an extended period of time. And so I think LPs are just getting more and more comfortable with the notion that, you know, the capital is there? It's going to continue to grow. I don't know how they're going to ha- you know, ha- handle redemptions. So, how do you get your money out of these vehicles? That's a huge question long term. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to see <laughs> the, the VC industry change even more.
0: Well, I'll move us along to our EdTech section because I think it's been approximately one week since we brought it up.
1: <laughs> I believe that's since um, <laughs> our last episode. EdTech is on fire. I mean, it's actually, it, it, it's truly, as someone who's been interested in EdTech for like a decade and have ha- has been told so consistently that EdTech is the dumbest uh, VC investment market ever. It is so gratifying to be sitting here and being like, na, 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 na. But you you <laughs> actually interviewed the CEO of Duolingo, which apparently is just booking like a nutshell. I don't know what my metaphor is, but like booking like crazy over there these days.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Duolingo has a once a year conference. And so I caught up with the CEO, Louis von Ahn, who is notoriously really hard to talk to, as in that he doesn't make himself available for press. And so I was, oh, was going to say, does
1: he speak another language? Because then you could have used the app to fix it. OK, but got it.
0: Oh God, oh God, I set you up for that. No, he was great. He was great. And I want to talk to him more. He told me that they hit 42 million monthly active users, which is up from 30 million less than a year ago. But the kind of flagship statistic that he shared was they are on track to make 180 million in bookings this year, up from 90 million last year. And only 3% of their users pay them, which is hard to get your mind around. Duolingo is a free product. And he kind of phrased it as like, if you have an iPhone 11 and live in Switzerland, I want to charge you money. But if you have a low end device in India, I don't want to charge you money. And I think he was saying that, of course, their goal is to grow that 3% number. But they're pretty happy with how it's going right now. And I thought that that was really a signal of how strong their business is. I think it's
1: also reflective of, um, we see this a lot in the enterprise space. So, you know, I interviewed Dustin Moskovitz, CEO of Asana. Yesterday, we talked about it on the on the shot. But, you know, one of the things that is is part and parcel to Asana's model is is it has exactly the same uh, low attachment rate. Uh, Most of its users don't pay. In fact, I, I think it's as low as 1% or 2%. But one of the keys to that is, you know, once you have people using it personally, they're using it, you know, in their daily lives, no, they're not paying. But guess what? When the company starts to ask, like, hey, we need a way to organize, what do you recommend? Who do you think starts to ask and advocate for the brand internally? Well, it's actually Asana. And you see this with a lot of different products. What I think is interesting is we're now starting to see this in EdTech. I think EdTech has traditionally been in the bucket of like, you either have to do some sort of ad driven model and keep it free, or you have to do this paid model where everything's sort of behind the paywall. And I think Duolingo and a bunch of others are sort of pioneering this like sort of mixed methods approach where you're sort of saying, look, most of our users aren't going to pay. And many of our users may not even be able to pay. But maybe they're great in the community. Maybe they help to, to evangelize the brand. And ultimately there's other people who will pay. And, and the key is, you know, I see this particularly in the tutoring marketplaces. Is you it is a whales model, you know, similar to Zynga and, and the gaming world um, way back when and, and still to the day. You know, sell your users are worth thousands of dollars. And oftentimes it's not even clear who those users are going to be. So it's far better to keep people engaged, even at the free tier. Because you kind of never know when someone's going to be like, well, now I'm going to start doing, you know, 10 hours of tutoring on math for the next 20 weeks, and I'm going to spend $10,000, you know, all of a sudden, and that you only got that user because you already had them engaged on the platform.
0: I think you're on point exactly with like kind of how it helps their credibility. Duolingo's other revenue engine, which they wouldn't disclose the amount of money they've made on it, is their English test. they been working on it for a while. The English test market is super huge in China and India. They have, through the pandemic, have gotten to partner with 2,500 institutions and are now making money every time someone takes an English test looking to get certified and come to the States or get a job that requires you to have that certification. And so I think Duolingo is smart in not solely betting the 3% only has to do with its language learning app, but I think it's smart in breaking its engine out in different ways. Because maybe you won't pay for its core service, but when you look for a way to get into school somewhere else and you think of Duolingo having its service, it's like they already have my heart, my mind, and I have it downloaded, I can just go on right to them.
1: I think that's exactly right. Well, talking about international, I mean, you know, obviously, with languages, you know, there's a lot going on globally in that world. You know, obviously, with languages, you know, we're talking about uh, the global markets, and there's just so much activity going on around the world. One of the interesting stories that I saw this week was for an Indian news app called InShorts, which which just got a huge round from a, a major investor. Natasha, tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so Lee Fixel was running Tiger Global. He started a new firm called Addition, and his first check into an Indian startup is InShorts, which I'll try and explain it to you because I downloaded it in an attempt to learn more about Indian news. Is like it's kind of like Snapchat that you can click through the stories and swipe through the st- maybe Tinder is a better way, but like you swipe through the stories, can scroll and read it, and it shows you kind of U.S. news and India news. And I'm not a huge fan of it because I think that fake news is obviously a problem everywhere in India, especially. There's not too much governance around news. And it felt like the WhatsApp memes that a lot of people are familiar with that use WhatsApp kind of manifesting themselves into an app, which is disguising itself as news. And so I'm interested to see what Lee Fixel's investment might do to the credibility of the app. But right now, I'm not super impressed, which I mean, popular news aggregator you're playing in a really dangerous space. Well, I think
1: again, we, you know, we're back to the moderation conversation, and I think, um, you know, we right. we talk about TikTok a lot, but it's, it's parent company ByteDance. I mean, its the first app and most successful app was uh, uh, Jinri uh, Totiao, which is a news aggregator app, but it's just an aggressively censored news aggregator app with a very good algorithm at sort of deliver delivering a personalized news feed that you want to read. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see you know, another company doing it with another format, you know, in the in the Indian market space, more for Indian Americans, we've also seen the juggernaut, which is, is run by a friend of mine, Snigda, and I believe you, you've you talked to her recently. But you know, she's t- taking the uh, subscription approach, right? So, you know, it's it's just interesting to me to see, you know, media popping up in all kinds of different communities with different models, everything from free to paid. I think that's uh, really exciting.
0: Last detail about InShorts is that it is profitable. And so that's another point for well, that. A profitable media news aggregator. company.
1: Wow. That's incredible. Uh, <laughs> Who has ever heard of one of those? <laughs> not me. Not me. Um, all right. Well, with, with Gusto, we're going to move on to to Gusto. To be fair, I think all their signature email signature lines actually have with Gusto a definition of the oh, word Gusto. Okay, so they saw the opportunity, um, they took it, it and it, now we're exactly. taking the opportunity. Um, so, so <laughs> a long time uh, a company that I've covered for many years. You know, they started in the, the small business payroll space, and, and so the, the CEO Joshua Reeves. It's always been focused on sort of delightful payroll for for small companies. So think re- restaurants, small consultancies, services in your local community, et cetera, maybe a couple of employees each. What's interesting is that it's now becoming a kind of a full service financial wellness platform for employees. And so with the new product they launched this week, Gusto, Gusto Wallet, the company now offers everything from uh, a cash advance feature to a debit card, to a cash account, to health insurance, and a bunch of other different features. And so what I think is interesting in, in the fintech world is we're seeing more and more companies sort of offering all of the above services. One reason they're able to do that is there's a bunch of platforms that are, you know, plug and play. You can actually add in a banking API and boom, you have debt, a debit card or a, a cash account available. But the other side of this is, is that, you know, the the cost of acquiring a customer in fintech is so high that if you have a customer, yeah. you know, it's extremely valuable and, and you can really extend the, the long-term value of the customer through these additional products. What's interesting is that almost everyone tries to own the direct deposit payment of your paycheck. Everyone wants that because if your money shows up in that account, that's where you're going to spend your time. And so what I thought was interesting here is that Gusto, which is at the HR level, right? It sells to companies, not only owns the direct uh, deposit because they are your payroll provider. Um, all this stuff is actually offered for free because they're actually selling a subscription oh. to the small businesses for payroll. Uh, everything else is sort of an add-on. And so I actually thought this was very disruptive to a lot of the startups we're seeing in fintech where, you know, they have to acquire a customer and Gusto is kind of going in through the back door. So I I thought that was super interesting. I don't know what your thoughts are, Natasha.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like they definitely had to make it free in order to lower some of that cost or all the cost of acquiring. I think they probably had no choice. But no, when you were explaining it, the first thing that came to mind is about another company I wrote about called Stackin that basically makes money helping fintech companies get customers. And so that was a big signal to me about your point on how noisy it's getting. You need to do these things because there's so much competition. And then number two, the startup name escapes me, but there's this new fintech company that's branding itself around: "We're going to help you and your partner create a financial account, and we're going to take care of couples' finance or family finance." And I thought that was also another example of how fintech maybe had to play in a very certain niche field, and now it's just going to go out of the gate swinging at everything because I think consumers are starting to get a lot more comfortable that they don't need to kind of inch in to a product but maybe you're like fine we'll treat you as our fix all
1: I think that's exactly right and look you know ultimately i mean these aren't even neo banks but in many ways these are sort of like the network features of neo banks coming together right your your bank there are now hundreds yeah. of banks right you can have it through your payroll you can have it through um one of these savings apps like digit or or acorns or some of these others um, you can do it through your stockbroker. You know, we were interviewing Andy Radcliffe at, at Wealthfront. I mean, they're offering now a bunch of these sorts of add-on features as well. So so no matter who, like, kind of offers you a financial service, they are your bank now. And so, you know, when I was hearing this, I was like, God, you know, the banks aren't doing well right now. They have this huge retail footprint, which is basically useless in, in the coronavirus, at least right. in the United States. Um, countries that are managing the the, the virus better uh, Imagine. actually have a little bit better banks. Um, and they're being nailed on investment banking fees, right? So all these trading fees are used to in the IPOs. When you have direct listings, the fees are lower. They're not raising as much capital. So you have this hit on, on the investment banking side. So like, I just don't know how the big banks survive, you know, and we're seeing this with City where they just be seed, scaling back their workforces. But I, I just think that there's a right. secular trend where the big banks are gone, and we're going to have hundreds. These are the new community banks. It's just going to be digital with the brand that you love. But we're going to have these kind of kind of new wave community banks where there's going to be hundreds of different options available for you to manage your finances.
0: I struggle though cuz I get excited when I see a piece or when they raise and I'm always like okay, this makes sense and great great marketing. But then I'm like who's actually going to win? What does it take to win? I don't know. And I'm I'm maybe you're not you don't know the answer well, either <laughs> cuz if we had the answer we probably wouldn't be podcasting right now. But I just I'm super curious, like, how do you eventually win? I
1: think, uh, well, I'm going to move us to their next topic, but I'll tell you how you're going to win. You're going to give everyone who joins your fintech app a $95 self-cleaning water bottle, because that is apparently what consumers want these days. You know, so so Lark, which is spelled L-A-R-Q in, in the list of names that are impossible to actually spell when you hear them, is a Bay Area startup that is, has sold 75,000 self-cleaning water bottles at $95 a pop. They just raised, I guess, uh, a Series A, Natasha. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So they raised a 10 million Series A by Seventure with participation from DCM. My question here is in the pandemic, who trusts self-cleaning? I am cleaning everything. I don't want someone to tell me that something's clean. I don't trust anyone anymore. And so I'm just curious how they're selling things because
1: no. Well, and I, I was curious because I don't leave my house. I have a self-cleaner, it's called a dishwasher, which, right. which to be fair, in New York City is, is actually an amenity to have a dishwasher in your own home. But I, I'm curious of like, you know, presumably this is for an office environment. Presumably this is for people who are on the go, who want to carry water, who, you know, go to a cafe but don't want to buy, you know, a $2, you know, uh, plastic bottle, have the waste, you know, for ecological reasons, uh, plus, you know, the cost. But for $95, what, what does self-cleaning even mean here?
0: I don't trust anything. Its total funding to date is $15.7 And I'll end with a company that's raised almost double that and makes half as much sense, Liquid Death. it is started as kind of a marketing stunt, Santa Monica-based startup. And it sells kind of like an energy drink that helps you not be hungover, from my understanding. A repackaged Pedialyte product.
1: Is it water? I actually don't know. I don't drink Liquid Death because... You know, I, I try to reduce the but, amount of things that are killing me on a daily basis. Um, but apparently it comes from the Austrian Alps, at least according to the marketing message I've got here. 23 million in effing funding. You know, I I, I think it's amazing because I think we've talked about a couple of these beverage companies over the years. I, I think we've got like, what was it Long Drink? Um, we had a company that had, what, 150 investors. What was that company? Do you remember this, Natasha? Uh, a couple of oh, months ago. Um, House, House. House, which is spelled H A U S you know, apparently beverages are in as a VC asset class. I don't understand this at all. I guess I guess ultimately the question is, do they get shelf space? You know, are they actually able to buy and get into the retail channel? That is actually part of the magic of Lark, is that it, it it's actually sold, I believe, in, in Nordstrom's and Bloomingdale's. So they were actually able to get sort of premium shelf space in stores that are presumably not open anymore. <laughs> but
0: yeah, I mean I'm curious if that's something they even want. Maybe of course that would, it would help them be successful, but I was just not saw that they are just mountain water. They're just mountain alp water. It's, so I was wrong just in saying water. it's a prepackaged it's, it's just water.
1: It's just water. You know, let me tell you something. You know, we we used to joke that like don't don't try to like forge for gold. Sell, you know, picks and axes to the gold diggers to go make your money. That's the way to do it in Silicon Valley. The trick is to just sell water at a high price. Okay, it reminds me of what what I always consider my favorite business, which is Moleskin. If you're able to convince people to pay $20 for a pack of paper, you are a magician. That is startup entrepreneurship, and you have done something really, really amazing. But I think that's going to be our show for, for today. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for the conversation, and we'll hear you all next week on Monday.